All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATAS, your Vietnam War in Outer Space speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. I am back with another bonus episode, another episode that has been commissioned by one of our really awesome Patreon supporters. And so this episode, we are going to be talking about the classic military science fiction novel, The Forever War by Joe Haldeman. This is a book that was published originally in 1974. And of course, there is just no way that I can talk about a book that is about soldiering without calling in for uh, assistance here, my own comrade, Brandon Buddha. Brandon, of course, is my co-host on Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, and also the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Uh, welcome back to ATOS, Brandon. Thanks for having me back on, Glenn. It's been a while. <laughs> I'm really excited to talk about this book. I feel like we've had this conversation about four times in our real life already, so it'll be fun to get on mic for once. So I also just want to say uh, thanks for the commission. I think uh, this is maybe the the one episode we've been rehearsing for, as I said, for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I think that is true. And so I'm really excited that we're finally getting a chance to do this episode. So yes, thank you so much to the individual who commissioned this episode. And of course, we always say thanks when we get these commissions. We say thanks on the air. We say thank you for the financial support. That really is a big way that the network is able to stay on the air. We also always say thank you for giving us the opportunity to read something or talk about something that we might not have gotten the chance to do otherwise. And both of those things very much apply to this episode. But this book is so important and I think is something that resonates particularly with a lot of our listeners across the network that although we had one listener commission this episode, we have over the years received a lot of interest in this. And in fact, since this episode was commissioned, the kind of gap between receiving that commission and us actually recording the episode, we've had other people ask if they could commission this book too, uh, multiple people. And so uh, something that occurred to me to today, Brandon, really was just that you know, we do thank people, but really from our perspective, and I kind of forget that these commissions actually are a nice boon for the rest of the audience as well, who also get these extra episodes. And in this case, in particular, it's about something that a lot of listeners have interest in. So just thanks again for having us do this. Just really awesome. So, okay, just a few notes about uh, what we're going to do today. Now, the 1974 version of this book, the original version of this book, was actually an abridgment of Haldeman's original text. And so what we are going to be talking about is the restored version of that text from 1991. And look, this is the version that you get by default now. It would actually be hard to find that older abridgment. And so if you just you know picked up a copy to read along with us and you're not sure if you've got the 1991 version, you almost certainly do. You almost certainly have the full text. Uh, so that's just a, a note before we get going. And uh, let's just talk about the plan for this episode, I guess, as well. So we're going to view this book through two lenses. Uh, first, we're going to look at the book as military science fiction and here, I, I think that we will end up talking a lot about our own experiences as American soldiers. Then we'll also talk about the book as political science fiction. In both cases, we are always, I think, going to be thinking about Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers, to which the Forever War is a response, at least in some way. And since we did a whole series on Starship Troopers last year, it's also just on our minds. And 
I, I guess this is actually, Brandon, something that could even become a series of our own, sort of looking at the, the great chain of important responses to Starship Troopers to include things like uh, Ender's Game, which matters a lot to me, and uh, I guess Old Man's War by John Scalzi, which I still haven't read, and there are lots of uh, lots of others, but uh, I don't know. That's putting the, the cart ahead of the horse, I suppose. So uh, let me just finish this little precis here by saying that, of course, we will start by going over the premise, also the structure of the book. I'll give a little synopsis for people people who need a refresher or who haven't read the book before. But I think to kick it all off, Brandon, I, I, I want to tug on that thread that you uh, you left dangling there about our experience with this uh, with this book. So what what is yours? How many times have you read this book before? This, this is just the second time I've read it, I think, though I, I remember it vividly because if I recall correctly, we either did this as part of a, a book club we put together after I left uh, the army, or you heavily recommended it, and we read it and talked a lot about it in bars, <laughs> along with Starship Troopers. So I I don't remember exactly the conditions under which I read it, but it was certainly a formative uh, time for me and a formative book. And uh, rereading it, I mean, I really remembered a lot of it, which is surprising because it's it has to have been a decade since I last read it. Yeah, that was almost 15 years ago, actually. And it was for a book club that we did that, which I, I wouldn't have had a vivid memory of that either. But we actually did it, well, exactly what I'm suggesting or suggested at the top of the show, which is we did Starship Troopers and then we did the Forever War immediately following it. And uh, I still have the whole, this was a you know book club that we did over email. It was us and a few other people. I still have all of those. I did not go and read them. Uh, I thought about it. I thought that might have made for a fun segment, but then I realized it would have made for a fun segment for us and us only, and not the listeners at home. So perhaps, perhaps we will <laughs> we will uh, we'll go to a bar someday with our phones and read through those emails and talk about what uh, what goofs we were fifteen years ago. Yeah, that would be that would be a great time, and uh, I hope we get the chance to do that again. But you know, we've talked now a lot about our our experience with this book. Let's talk about the book itself. Right. I'll give a little synopsis here. So the Forever War follows the career of a new soldier who has been drafted into the Space Army in order to go fight a war against some newly encountered space aliens. Now, this soldier's name is William Mandela, but we're just going to call him Mandela because that's how it works in the Army. And uh, Mandela is going to have the unique privilege of participating in the war from the beginning until the very end and surviving the whole thing. Now, this war begins in 1997. It ends in 2917, though Mandela doesn't return from it until 3138, and we get a little epilogue, actually, from 3143. Now, it is not the case that Mandela has been biologically alive for over a thousand years in absolute terms. It is that he has been traveling through space at relativistic speeds. Uh, this is a fairly common concept in science fiction, I'll say, though it is one that Haldeman, who has a physics degree, I think explains and uses really well in this book. And so we follow Mandela's career from basic training as a private to his time as a sergeant, and then after he receives a commission, his time as a lieutenant, and finally as a major. And that's the end of the book where we actually get a gripping epic battle that we will spend a little bit of time on for sure. 
Now, along the way, we also get Mandela's love story with another soldier. Her name is Mary Gay, which happens to be the name of Haldeman's real-life wife. Uh, we also get a long stint back on Earth in 2024. Uh, and of course, as we go, Mandela is meeting and also commanding new soldiers who were born centuries after he was. And a lot of the novel is really concerned with the effects that the war is having at home. And so very much like Starship Troopers, right? The Forever War functions both as political science fiction and military science fiction. Haldeman really does an amazing job of blending these two together, though I think in a way that's different from Heinlein, Haldeman is way more focused on the question of what it means to to go home. Uh, and that is a big part of this novel is Mandela's struggle with the concept of home and what it might mean to return after experiencing something that hardly anyone else has experienced in the way that he has. I think the only other novel that... Uh, I, I remember reading who that left an impression on me about this point was All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, that's uh, Eric Maria Remark's great World War One novel where the soldier comes home on leave from the trenches and everybody's talking about the glory of war and trying to buy him beer. And he is just like, what are you talking about? Uh, and this novel, I think, has maybe not quite so pointed uh, an element of that type of critique of war, um, but it is really a novel about coming home. This is absolutely the case. We'll have a little segment later, actually several segments later, two segments later, where we'll explicitly compare this to Starship Troopers. But one thing that is immediately clear is that you know Starship Troopers doesn't end with the end of the war, right? The, the war is still happening. It's it's still in the middle of it. Whereas this tells us the complete story and is very much about uh, going home again, the extent to which you can't, uh, but then also looking for a new home at the end of the war. And I think that you're right completely to point to the First World War as kind of the blueprint for that. You know, whether it is the novel All Quiet on the Western Front or the experiences of of others in this struggle, uh, other speculative fiction writers like Tolkien and uh, C.S. Lewis as well, uh, or other writers just that who you and I like quite a bit, Hemingway and Auden, uh, Robert Graves are, are great examples of this, that it's the Great War, the First World War experience, I think, really saturates this book, even as this book is, as we'll talk about in a little bit, a, a response to Haldeman's own time uh, in, in the Vietnam War. And really, I guess we might end up thinking a little bit about some parallels between the Vietnam War and the First World War, whereas for, for Heinlein, his experiences or the thing that he was thinking about was much more the Second World War. So we'll try to keep that in mind. But before we get to really any of that in any real detail, let's start our exploration of this book as military science fiction by just beginning at the beginning and talk about basic training and, and some of the other uh, training periods or other training techniques that we, we glimpse here. And I, I wondered... Brandon, because I don't think this is something that we talked about when we did this for our book club 15 years ago, but something that I noticed on this read, because I you know, read it twice for this episode and had lots and lots of sticky notes all over this book, is that we get mentioned one time, very casually, that uh, this basic training is in Missouri. So uh, it's probably Fort Leonard Wood, where we did our basic training too. 
<laughs> yeah, everybody goes to Fort Leonard Wood. <laughs> I, anything less is uh, not worth it. You're not a real soldier. <laughs> well, at least that's what I was told when uh, I was in basic training. So yeah, Fort Leonard Wood produces real army soldiers and uh, nowhere else does as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, though by the time we were at Leonard Wood, uh, Leonard Wood was no longer the basic training place that you went if you were actually going to be uh, in, in the infantry. It was uh, for us as intel, and then there were medics and and truck drivers for me. I don't remember who. I think it was a little bit different for you. No, that was right. Yeah, I went. I went to basic training over the early fall, late summer, and it was all uh, the reservists were rotating through as drill sergeants and there were a ton of reservists also in um my unit so yeah it was it was a weird experience i think even by basic training standards yes at leonard wood is maybe perhaps a sort of weird basic training experience now but it was one of the most important basic training facilities for the second world war the korean war which is where we've been encountering leonard wood a lot reading through uh, gene wolf's experiences uh, in in basic training in leonard wood uh, but then also the vietnam war and presumably it's just haldeman went to basic training at fort leonard wood as well so this is just a reality effect here and that was just a fun little tidbit for us but i think what really matters for getting into this, for engaging with this as a type of science fiction novel, is really to think about the types of of training that actually happened here and kind of the way that Haldeman describes this. One of the things that really jumped out to me was that Haldeman writes about the experience of basic training as a kind of well, really, as like you know, an experience that your body is going through, an embodied experience where small comforts and and also discomforts really, really matter. That it's not just this kind of intellectual or or moral uh, exercise, which is more what it feels like in Starship Troopers. I think that's the right approach to basic training. I mean, what I took away from the opening section of the novel is that you know, with the exception of the, you know, killing and survival tools that they are taught, um, all of combat, all of the combat training that they experience, that Haldeman's unit experiences is really outdated, right? Um, and so, you know, they learn how to use the killing tools, their suits, the weapons. They learn, you know, the novel opens with this killer hook, you know, I'm going to teach you eight silent ways to kill a man. And then within two pages, it's like, why do we need this? We're not fighting men. Um, you know, and then pointing out how, how the soldiers feel as though they're training is basically outdated and worthless. And uh, to me, that, that you know, was something that I felt in my basic training and then subsequent trainings as well. Like the point of basic training, which you don't, I guess, really see until you get out of it a little bit, is really just to train you how to work with other people like you're a unit, not really about tactics. There is a general disdain for, well, really, all all leaders in any capacity in 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 this book but in particular there's a real disdain i think for the people who are doing the training both the the trainers themselves and then the commanders of the 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 training units here in the army that we definitely don't get in starship troopers which which uses as really its its narrative device a type of 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 worship of different types of teachers right that the the different overlapping flashback narratives that we get in Starship Troopers are really about Johnny Rico's 
are, are really about Rico's time with different types of of mentors and how they have shaped him uh, morally, philosophically, and 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 so on. And here we just immediately get Haldeman expressing a disdain for the whole idea of that. The instructors don't really know what they're up to. Uh, the training itself was clearly designed by. Uh, by people who have not been in combat and aren't going to be in combat and were making training modules for some other war that we're not even fighting anymore. All of that really bleeds off the the page. And I feel like this was much more akin to my actual basic training experience than the way that Heinlein described it. Yeah, I mean, Heinlein's goal we, t- we talked about in the episodes on Starship Troopers was to really write a sort of buildings roman where Johnny Rico at the end can say, it's because of these four things that I learned in these moments that you read about that I was able to make this decision. And that's just not Haldeman's goal. I mean, Haldeman, I think much more than Heinlein, actually wants to capture the sense that a private has, in particular in basic training in this section, uh, of knowing that having a low rank also means that you're expendable in combat, but also in training. And that feeling really starts to grow in training. I mean, I remember when I was in uh, sergeant school, we had one day they were going to train us on um, urban warfare techniques. And we everybody was excited about it. We were I was in a class with a lot of people who had been deployed more than once already and were just looking forward to that training. And instead, um, there was never going to be that training. What we had instead was a surprise inspection. And our class basically revolted. They were everybody was furious. They're like, why do we need to know how to do this stupid inspection? Like, how is this gonna help us stay alive in this new war we're fighting? where knowing how to sweep and clear a building as a squad is more important than whether the buttons on your uniform are facing the right way in your closet. And so I think, you know, that that Haldeman really captures that feeling of knowing, you know, I talked about expendability, but also the, the pointlessness of the training um, where he knows, Mandela knows, that his job Basically, as far as he can tell, is not to fall down and to shoot first. And it's just, you know, Haldeman also points out how Mandela has this advanced degree. He's super intelligent. He's got all this stuff going for him, and he's learning how not to fall down again. Yeah, I think something that is a little bit lost in this book, though, is really thinking about the point of basic training. And in fact, something that happens here is that the line between basic training and then going on to advanced training, what in the army we call AIT, where hey, the A stands for advanced and then the, the I stands now for individual, though it used to stand for infantry. That line is really blurred here in the book. It's Well, it's not blurred. It's just something that Mandela as a narrator doesn't call our attention to, though if you have experience with this, you can see where that has happened. And so you know, one of the things that's happening here is that Haldeman really is describing what this is like to be in it in the moment, right? It's about how much it sucks to get randomly assigned to the the top bunk underneath the heater and how you're just not going to sleep well that night. It's about how <laughs> boring class is, in part because you know that it's going to be kind of useless. What we're not getting is a detached look at what the these different types of training are trying to accomplish and an assessment of whether or not it's the best way or even a good way or if there is a better way, which is the sort of 
thing that Heinlein is up to. He's trying to think of what is the best type of training to to give new soldiers. Holderman is just telling us what Fort Leonard Wood was like for him. He's not commenting on whether or not you know there's any utility here. But of course, basic training isn't really where you're supposed to learn how to sweep a building or sweep a room, right? I mean, in the sense of with guns, not with brooms, uh, because that's what <laughs> AIT is for, right? That basic training really is about dehumanizing you, de-individualizing you. And so random inspections, literally sweeping the floor over and over again is <laughs> what is what that's for. I mean, it is to break you down and make you feel less than, and then to build you up again with a, a new mentality, right? Where the things that you're looking for, for like positive affirmation in your life and your your identity, to reorient your identity around the unit. Right. It really is about unit thinking. And I think that that, it, I guess it's not really a theme. It's not expressly or explicitly a theme, but learning how to think as a unit and what that means and the cost of that is a big part of Mandela's overall arc as a character. And we do get quite a bit of this actually throughout the whole book, both in the in the training and then once they actually get into the war. It's a particularly great scene, right, where one of the uh, fighting suits, one of the mech suits, malfunctions, and they have to to save the person who's inside of it and have to really MacGyver their way out of this problem. And they they do that, and that's a really gripping part of the of the book. All of the suit malfunction stuff to me is so brilliant. It, it is such a real it it feels so real because that's unlike Heinlein it's not the glorification of the military and its tools and its killing tools because that stuff breaks down all the time your helmet doesn't fit right your gas mask won't seal your gun misfires all this stuff there's a whole acronyms for fixing all of this stuff and so to have s- such an advanced technology break down to such a deadly degree, which also can happen, uh, I, I think really highlights um, the way Haldeman feels about this training, about the tools you're given to do the job, about all of it. And it's it's really, really excellently done. I, I really, it really resonated with me that Haldeman isn't just not glorifying the giant military and the military industrial complex. He's also not glorifying technology and technique as a way to become beyond human. Haldeman is scathingly critical of his own experiences here and and is manifesting that in the novel, right? He's scathingly critical of his own experiences in Vietnam and in training. And one of the ways that that manifests here is that there is something happening in this basic training and then in their later training that you and I, at least as far as we recall, I suppose, did not go through and something that doesn't show up in Starship Troopers, which is that the soldiers are given post-hypnotic triggers to make them want to kill. And this is particularly harrowing. We get a, a great description of this in the, the first bit of combat that Mandela is in, the, the first battle, the first uh, planet-side battle of the war, where Mandela describes the, the trigger that they were given, uh, which was uh, images of, of aliens boarding uh, a human colonist vessel and eating babies while mothers watched in screaming terror. Then the aliens raped the women to death. They held the men down while they plucked flesh from their living bodies and gobbled it up. And I mean, this is a passage that goes on for almost a a, a page. It's 
horrifying, it's grotesque, but it is also absurd. And Mandela knows that it's absurd. He intellectually points out to us how none of these things that are in this like CGI video that has been put into their brains could ever actually possibly happen, right? None of these aliens would actually be able to eat humans. They wouldn't be able to digest them. They don't even bring babies on colonist ships and that sort of thing. Nonetheless, the the brainwashing still works and Mandela and everyone else in his unit gleefully carve up the first aliens they encounter who turn out not to even be the enemy. And he feels terrible about it. But nonetheless, this has been done to them in basic training. It's a harrowing scene, I think. Not just the the feeling that your autonomy, your ability to make choices is completely gone, but the way that Haldeman is questioning the people who made the decision that this was a good idea, that that the soldiers might feel so much guilt at encountering a new life form uh, and then de- killing it. Because remember, at this point, nobody knows actually what the Tarans even look like. That the soldiers would feel so much guilt and remorse about this that the best thing to do would be to offload that responsibility of action onto the military itself so you don't have to carry around the weight of your decisions. And I think that would be worse than carrying around the weight of your decisions. And I think, you know, Haldeman points out later on in the novel that the military feels the same way. But I mean, maybe they're trying to solve, maybe the military is trying to solve a sort of PTSD issue preemptively, uh, but it's clear that that is not the way to go about it. Yeah, I wondered about this because Haldeman doesn't really talk a whole lot actually about what does motivate this. I think when they back off from this, it is because they find that it doesn't work very well and that maybe there are better techniques. But this is something that the American military was experimenting with during Vietnam, uh, even started a little bit in Korea, uh, stopped doing this by the time you and I were, were in the army. But the problem that they were, the problem that our army was trying to solve dates from the Second World War, in which it became clear that most soldiers, even in a battle like D Day or the Battle of the Bulge or on Iwo Jima, when firing their weapons, still were not really shooting to kill. That American civilians, at the very least, uh, setting aside the idea that maybe it says something about human nature, whatever that might mean, but that American civilians of the mid-20th century, at least, didn't have a real impulse, a real desire to want to shoot other humans. And so we're not aiming. And that there was a there was a desire to make people actually want to aim their weapons to be more efficient. Uh, this did manifest in my basic training experience. I don't know if it did yours, Brandon, where we were told over and over and over again that you know one shot, one kill is the the mantra that we're supposed to live by. But yeah, in the '60s and the '70s, our military was definitely experimenting with uh, post hypnotic suggestions and, and brainwashing in order to try to turn people into killers more efficiently. That, that's absolutely the case. I think the military found out, uh, you know, the, the uh, PSYOP and propaganda arm of the military discovered that good old fashioned um, propaganda just works fine. You know, the raising of the esprit de corps of the unit itself while dehumanizing the enemy, uh, the glory of killing the enemy, the evil of the enemy. But then also a curious thing happened in my basic training. And I wonder if it was my drill sergeant 
breaking down, uh, not mine, one of the units, drill sergeants in one of the classes, or if this was incorporated into the training, which seems like it was more to me, uh, where he stood up with his M16 um, and said he'd killed three people with it and that he felt bad about it, but that you know, that's what the army called him to do. And so there was this attempt to incorporate the guilt of the actions that we'd be asking to take and saying that that's okay. So like already asking us to incorporate what we might be going through emotionally after the, after we'd killed, if that ever came up, but then also saying it's, you know, you might, you're probably not going to kill a lot of people. If you do remember they're the enemy and the, the, the things they do, they bomb our bases, they do this, they do that. Um, so it was just, it was, a, I, that, has always stood out to me. And I, I've always wondered if that was an attempt, uh, a new attempt by the people who design training programs to say it's okay to feel bad, but you're here to do a job and this is the job and blah, 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 you know, all that sort of stuff. We had some humanizing elements like that from our instructors. Although, as I recall, it was on a much smaller scale. It was one particular drill sergeant in our, our unit, uh, Sergeant Hill, who was frequently taking us aside to have those types of conversations with us. He also was the one who over and over again told us uh, something that, that shows up here in the Forever War, which is that whenever we do find ourselves in a combat situation, that all of the high motives that maybe we had for wanting to join the military or everything that we've been told about why we as a a country are fighting this war, all of that is going to go out of your mind. And none of that is going to be the reason you're making any action, taking any action in a combat situation. That that in that situation, all you are trying to do is keep yourself and your friends alive. And in particular, that connection to your friends in that moment is indispensable. And so he was taking us aside to teach us techniques to where in a firefight, we would remember that we were not alone, that we were with other people, uh, teaching us things like hand signals, uh, encouraging us to array ourselves in ways where we were always in physical contact with other soldiers and so on. And we find that here, I think, at the final battle. I think that this is something that Haldeman himself found in Vietnam as well, and it shows up in this book. It's really fascinating. I mean, not only that, uh, both of our training experiences, which were uh, fairly far apart, not that far, but that it seems as though um, Tradoc was trying to incorporate some of this humanizing element, perhaps uh, in an attempt to say it's okay to have feelings as a soldier, especially because so many soldiers from Vietnam came home um, in really bad shape with, you know, PTSD and various other sorts of of, of trauma. Uh, you know, what one of the things that jumps out to me about this earlier scene in the novel, this first battle, really the first land battle of the war that Mandela experiences, is that he shows us that the soldiers are kind of ready to kill to begin with because of the fauna on the planet, which has some sort of weird psychic effect on the people who have a psychic sensitivity and accidentally kill them. And the soldiers are already kind of primed to fight. And so it's an interesting structural choice, I think, from the writing perspective to show us right out of training how these people are ready to kill. And then when they're confronted with a real battle, how they respond to that and how they're done with it 
by the end of the first battle. They're done with the whole business of soldiering. I'm going to take this as a a segue, Brandon, to move us into talking about the way that Haldeman thinks about the the army uh, from this sort of zoomed out perspective, this macro perspective, how the army works, how it functions, how it's designed, which is something, of course, that Heinlein was very, very interested in. I think Haldeman a little bit less so, though Haldeman's depictions are more descriptive rather than Heinlein's uh, prescriptive uh, treatment of his new model army. And one of the things, of course, that... uh, you've mentioned or at least hinted at already that jumps out in the particular scene that you're talking about here, Brandon, is that the soldiers in this unit are all, well, they're they're elite people. They're people with elite intellects and elite skills. Uh, you know, and the, the word elite is not my word. It's the word of the text, that these are people who were uh, drafted uh, following the, the rules of the Elite Conscription Act of 1996, which called for the conscription of people with IQs over 150, who also had a high level of physical fitness. And so one of the things that means is that we actually get some psychics in in the unit which <laughs> thankfully for me I, I don't care for psychics in in stories though they're all over the science fiction of the 50s 60s and 70s but they don't really matter all that much in this in this story but that is something that's there in this list of specialties that people have because, you know, people are specializing in physics and biology and then also there are some like telepaths as well Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's re- it's really fascinating. This uh, elite conscription act. Uh, it 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 seems so strange to me that you'd want to take the best and brightest and put them in infantry. And the reason for doing this is still a mystery to me after having read this novel, because the fr- the goal of this first battle that the army has is to capture one Torin and kill the rest. And so Mandela is, you know, maybe the elite of the elite. His physics degree kind of puts him in a category where he can handle the technology, a lot of the stuff that is required in order to fight this war, which is a highly technologically advanced war. So he's kind of put in this safe squad, you know, early on, and that's kind of why he survives. But, you know, one of the things is they're only conscripted for two years. So it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. It's two years subjective time, or they have to survive, uh, I, I forget, maybe just one battle early on. And so, yeah, it doesn't seem that bad. When this battle's over uh, and they return home, they're done. There's going to be new soldiers to fight this war because they had to replenish the people who went out because of the subjective time travel that it takes to go back and forth. So it's an interesting organization. I mean, and as time goes on throughout the novel, it gets more and more wonky with how recruitment functions and retention functions. Yes, here in this this first bit, right, where Mandela you know, ends up conscripted in, in 1997, which is Actually, the same exact year that I joined the American Army, uh, I never went into outer space and never wore a suit. Uh, sad, sadly, <laughs> it was just it was just BDUs, but uh, and I and totally terrestrial experience here. But yeah, that's fun. So they join in 1997, and then yeah, two years of time after that, then they're able to get out. Though it's not two years in absolute time; it's much longer than that. In fact, it's it's 2024 when they're actually back home at Earth and and are given the option of getting out. And almost all of them, almost everyone in Mandela's unit, decides to get out. And they get a, a speech, you know, kind of insulting them. They get a, a speech about this, and 
uh, you know, trying to, I guess, get them to change their minds about it, but also then saying you can change your minds about this at any point. You know, you just can walk back into a recruiting office and say that you would like to come back and you'll get a commission and we're going to just send you to your choice of assignment. And in fact, what we really need you to do is to train the next round of soldiers. Now, Mandela and and Mary Gay, we'll talk more about this in the political science fiction segment, but they have a bad experience. They don't like 2024 Earth. It doesn't feel like home to them. So they decide together to go join up again. They do walk back into a recruitment office and say, we would like to be stationed together on the moon in a training unit. And, uh, the recruiter there says, well, you know, we don't need to give you any paperwork that specifies that. Mandela insists, I want the paperwork that says, these are going to be our assignments. They get that. And then five minutes later, after they have sworn the oath again and signed the paperwork, uh, they get new orders sending them to combat units, right? The, essentially, the military lying about this whole choice of assignment business, uh, even though they did honor the promise about the the commissions. But the, the lying about the choice of assignment is... Uh, I, I think every soldier's experience of the military. Yeah, that, that's the reason I didn't reenlist <laughs> because of, of of this sort of uh, games playing with with the paperwork. I, you know, it was it was going to be a two year reenlistment. I was going to go to X place for six months, then come back. I'd have eighteen months, and I could be stationed and have the same job I had now, and nothing was ever going to change. And I thought. I don't think that's that doesn't sound right to me. I've never seen that work for anybody. So I was just like, goodbye. Can you give me the medical out processing paperwork, please? That's the first place I'm going. So yeah, it, you know, it just absolutely that this feels so real again. Haldeman probably seeing this happen time and time again with soldiers showing up back in Vietnam after being told they'd be able to go home or get out or whatever. And just, um, the military needs them. So they're coming back. They can't get out right now. There's a, you know, a, a, a stop gap. It's just like whatever's going on. You can just see that he has experience with army paperwork. Yes. And I'm sure that this did happen to loads of people in Vietnam, people who you know, were promised that if you reenlisted, we wouldn't say, we're not going to send you back to the war because we have other jobs that we need people to do. You can go take one of those and we can take the, you know, someone else then can go have their combat tour. And I'm sure that people fell for that. Uh, I'm sure that thousands of people fell for that. And uh, I'm glad that Haldeman uh, calls that out here. Uh, it is something, of course, that, that continues. And, and, you know, to be fair to the military, uh, you know, needs change. Uh, but uh, the, the right. lying, lying about choice of duty station is uh, a time-honored tradition in the military. And I mean, I think even in basic training, we had a, a cadence that was about my recruiter lied to me uh, because this is something yeah, the drill uh-huh. sergeants think is hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, the two two uh, cadences is uh, your girlfriend sleeping with somebody else or boyfriend. These gender neutral name Jody. It's great. Or uh, yeah, the army lied to you. Suck it up. Yes, that's, that's a big part of basic training. <laughs> well, something else that jumped out to me about the way that Haldeman depicts this space army is in the form of the the central command, which of course is mostly taken up with logistics, but does not trust field commanders not to go AWOL with the spaceships. And so the field commanders, either the, the army units who are going to go do the fighting or even the captain of the Space Navy vessel, they have no control over the spaceship's long distance travel. Everything is programmed by central command. 
so that you have no choice in where you're you're going to go. And this I thought and this I thought was a real uh, an indictment of the way that the Vietnam War was prosecuted. I mean largely by computers is what what Haldeman has here, but by people who have no idea what it's actually like to be on the front lines and themselves kind of feel like they're waging some kind of war with the field soldiers. It's a really bleak vision, I think. We don't get a ton about Central Command in the novel, but I I got the sense certainly that that Mandela has no respect for Central Command. Before Mandela goes back to Earth, it's clear to the reader that all of humanity has been put into the service, and in one way or another, of maintaining a huge military-industrial complex. You know, and and so throughout the novel, we get these check check-ins with humanity, uh, and we're going to talk about that. But you know, kind of the overall gist of it is, yeah, humanity's gone through some rough patches. Eventually, they figure it out. You know, they colonize other planets and. You know, all that's going on during the war, but it's really in service to maintaining and expanding the needs of the soldiers and the needs of the military-industrial complex, which is run by Central Command, who has no respect for humanity, which is kind of one of the points of the novel, I think, by the time we get to the end. And so, yeah, it is, a, as I said, a bleak vision. Um, you know, it even gets to the point where the people's people have jobs that command uh to control the human population based on the needs of the military. I think it's fair to say that Mandela doesn't really feel any antipathy towards the Torrens, towards the enemy, but feels a lot of antipathy for the the government and also for the military brass who have sent him into these into these battles. And uh, we'll see that at the at the end, especially when he realizes that the war was all a misunderstanding. That the war was it never had any any real purpose. Mandela has a great line in here, actually, where he says, a good sign that an army has been around too long is that it starts getting top-heavy with officers. Uh, This is something that I think maybe one of the few places where he and Heinlein actually agree on things. We have a similar line in Starship Troopers, but you know, this happens sort of near the end of Mandela's career in the military, where he realizes that a lot of positions that used to be NCO positions are now officer positions, and he's critical of of, of that. And we, we do get something similar in Starship Troopers. But all right, let's talk about the war a little more broadly, Brandon. I I think let's start by just talking about how the Forever War here is an analog for Vietnam. I think I'll just let you hit some of the high points there. I'm not sure that this is something we really need to prove to anybody. Like, I don't think anyone doubts that this is an analog for Vietnam, but let's, let's hit the points anyway. Yeah. I mean, we already talked a little bit about the scene that really stands out as the analog to Vietnam. And that that's the one where they it's Mandela's first battle. They land on this jungle planet. Everything about the planet is alien. The trees have thorns. The fauna is strange and deadly in new and interesting ways, much like the jungles of Vietnam. And, uh, you know, Mandela's there. He's about to take place in a battle to capture a tauren and destroy the base they've built. But nobody's seen a Torin yet. And so everyone is just full of anxiety as they move towards a place they're told to go, unsure of what they'll encounter there. Now, I'm no Vietnam scholar. I mean, I'm reading Peter Straub's glorious Blue Rose trilogy, which has caught up a lot in um, the personal travesty, the aftermath of um, some really dark things that had happened in Vietnam to a particular group of soldiers. Um, 
and the ongoing effects that that plays in their lives. So this is maybe a little bit colored by that, but it seems to me as though the war in Vietnam, as it's portrayed in popular media, you know, like Forrest Gump, but also novels like the Blue Rose trilogy by by Peter Straw, particularly the first and third books, often just show soldiers going from point A to point B. They've been given some sort of objective, but it seems as though they don't really know what that objective is. It's pretty unclear, I guess, unless you're going to find Colonel Kurtz or something like that. <laughs> but what you see is that the the jungle is hot and scary. You don't know when you'll be ambushed. You don't know by what you'll be ambushed. By as a terrible sentence, deal with it. Uh, but that's exactly the mood that Haldeman captures in chapters 12 through 15 of this book. The soldiers are just waiting for danger and they don't know where it's going to come from. And then once the soldiers are required to be violent, they're given a reason not to take responsibility for their actions. You know, we talked about that, that, that post-hypnotic suggestion. You know, in fact, we're told if the soldiers were to be captured, they'd be killed by their own government. And so obviously the Torrens then don't know much about the humans or what they're doing there either. And you can get this sense that neither side really knows why they're fighting. So you know, this battle scene that I talked about, that I'm talking about here early on, really stands out to me as being drawn from Haldeman's own experiences in Vietnam. But beyond that, I think what Haldeman really wanted to show as we've 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 as we've talked about is what it's like to be a soldier. He even says this in the introduction, you know, he wanted to write about war and why we have wars and who wars serve, you know, maybe to enrich people in the in the military industrial complex, maybe to support the economy. Um, and that the, you know, the war that Haldeman happened to fight was Vietnam. But this book is really for soldiers of all wars. Right. What this book is about fundamentally is Mandela's experience as a soldier. This is a book about the experience of being a soldier. It certainly is filtered through Haldeman's own experiences of being a soldier, but I think it has universal application, much like All Quiet on the Western Front does, for exa- for example. And I think in ways that Starship Troopers does not, which we will we will get to momentarily, but I think that for me, the single best passage of this book that sums up Mandela's experience is actually as he and most of his comrades are choosing to be discharged when they return to Stargate after their first uh, their, their their first combat is this speech that General Botsford makes to them uh, I guess in some kind of attempt to get them to to change their mind and to to reenlist and he says my own memories of combat are over a half century old to me it was exhilarating strengthening I must be a different kind of person than all of you. And Mandela's response to this, I mean, it's not a verbal response, but his his thinking response to this is, or have a very selective memory. And I think that that is spot on, right? And I think in this sense, Botsford is essentially Heinlein here, right? That Starship Troopers is describing combat as this kind of exhilarating and strengthening activity, whereas here in the forever war it is just horror and terror it is something to try to survive and then to try to escape and to try to avoid and even your own life support systems can kill you right which is a a major thing that happens here with uh mandela's you know romantic interest romantic partner uh mary gay where she nearly dies in 
a suit that the military made her that's designed to keep her alive. And so this, the sense that anything anywhere can take your life away, as long as you're in the military, uh, also bleeds over into, um, Mandela's personal life as well. And so he's really just, he's really just finding it difficult to not only adjust to being in the military, but then adjusting to not being in the military as well. Well, we have not been able to resist bringing up Starship Troopers at every turn, or I guess I've probably been more guilty of it than you have, Brandon, so far. But <laughs> let's uh, let's focus on that for a moment. And I think, yeah, let's let's use the the suits as a way to get get into that. Now, the suit that you were just talking about with Mary Gay is actually one of the space suits that they have to wear in the spaceship in order to uh, travel at at high velocity or under. Uh, high gravitational forces, I guess. It's not actually the mech suits, though those also are, are frequently malfunctioning. But the the mechanized combat suits, this is you know one of the things explicitly that they have in common. It's the first thing really that lets us know that the Forever War is an engagement with, it is a response to Heinlein's Starship Troopers. And one of the things that Haldeman does here is to subtly point out that Look, Heinlein just thinks it would be cool to fight in a suit like this, but hasn't really thought through any of the implications of it. And so Haldeman shows us how dangerous the suits are to the people using them, as you've said, Brandon, over and over again. He also makes fun of the whole idea of the bounce, which is you know this really important phrase in Starship Troopers. And Haldeman points out that bouncing will likely get you killed by smashing into a mountain or a building at, you know, 80 meters per second. And just <laughs> so just right off the bat, Haldeman really comes out swinging at Starship Troopers. It's true. Yeah. The, the, I, I, I would say that in terms of this being a piece of military science fiction, there, there are the two major areas of overlap. The first is, yes, this mechanized suit and weapons to fight a war with an alien race who is as different and mysterious from us as can be, though the Torrents are humanoid, I think, uh, to some degree. But the second area of overlap that I see is the trajectory of the narrator from private to officer. You know, in Forever War's case, it's a major. But as I said, Forever War is far less of a buildings romant than Starship Troopers is. Mandela isn't telling us the story of how they captured the queen bug and there's a turning point in the war against the bugs and blah, 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 and all this and all this other stuff. Mandela is just trying to survive his career. He's not trying to demonstrate that he's always made the right decisions and even the bad times have led to this great moment. Mandela's just survived the longest. And that's really the narrative hook of the novel. This is a novel about survival and the difficult choices that Mandela makes not to thrive, not to be a hero in the war, but merely to survive not only in a in a in a pointless forever war, but also to survive being home. Uh, there's a part we'll talk about soon, I'm sure, in the, in the 21st century, but we didn't really talk about Mandela's uh reenlistment or or going for a commission. And he does this because he has to choose between killing humans or killing torrents. And that's the choice he has to make. And he doesn't actually want to live his life on earth killing humans. So he goes to get a commission. That's a survival choice. That's a emotional survival choice and a physical survival choice. Because as far as he's seen, humans are more deadly than the torrents are. 
So he re-enlists, and it's a it's a heartbreaking moment, and and we don't really see that with Johnny Rico too much. His obstacles to becoming a hero are far less emotionally deep than what Mandela chooses. Well, I think your description of this, Brandon, is really almost like a, a horror novel, and I think there is a real sense in this book the first time you're reading it when you get to the the final battle sequence that you're. That reads much more like a horror story than it does like a war story in the sense that it feels like we're reading the first person account of the final girl. And and I, I would not have been surprised if Mandela had been the only survivor at at the end of this at the at the end of this battle at the end of the whole thing it feels like it is that type of a story rather than a story in which the soldiers themselves are active agents going on glorious missions to do awesome things to you know bring the war to a heroic close which is what starship troopers is about and so just even the whole tone of it, right? Where both of them are writing about war. They are even following, I think, very different genre conventions in the way that they're doing that. And I do think that that shows up very clearly in a comparison of these these final battle sequences. Yeah, for me, this this final battle sequence in The Forever War was really challenging for me to read. Uh, mostly it was because I was reading it while I was feeding my son this <laughs> bottle. And so like the five minutes that I would have to read, and I was reading it out loud. Um, and it's, it is gruesome. It is dark. It is pointless. And it is about survival. Whereas something we talked about, uh, another thing we talked about in Starship Troopers is the way that Heinlein combines the building's Roman with the quest narrative and how that final battle is about getting the the golden key, so to speak, that's going to you know unlock the future, the, the glorious future uh, for Rico, Johnny Rico. Um, and, and that was exciting. It was driven by character motives, by the needs of the narrative, by all these important page-turner elements that you get in a good pulp novel, whereas The End of the Forever War is, to me, very challenging to read and goes on for for what feels like too long. But that just emphasizes how this is about survival, not about glory. Right. I mean, it, it's a lot of waiting, right? It's a lot of waiting for something to happen, which is, I think, every military experience. But it's, it's very different than the way that Heinlein writes his final climactic battle experience, which does involve some some waiting around, but has a sort of thrill to it where, yeah, this has a kind of tediousness to it, for sure. I just have to ask, Brandon, does, does Rachel know that you read this out loud to, to your baby? <laughs> she doesn't know what I read out loud to, to, to my son. Yeah, she has no idea. Uh, I mean, he's fine. He can't understand language yet. So I think it'll be okay. Yeah, he'll totally be fine. At the age that Laszlo is now, or, or, when, or hey, when Finch was the age that Laszlo is now, I was reading him Raymond Chandler, and Elizabeth did hear me read the word smut to him. But I will say definitively, Finch is yet to ever actually repeat the word smut. So it's fine. It'll be fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. We'll move on. We, I read him the Gruffalo every day. And uh, so that, that just covers up a multitude of sins, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's still Finch's favorite book, too. <laughs> All right. Well, we should move into talking about The Forever War 
as political science fiction here. And uh, I'm maybe just going to give a little synopsis of some of the history that we get. Most of the political philosophy or uh, commentary on political systems or commentary on what is dystopic and what is utopic comes in the depiction of Earth in the 21st century that Mandela and Mary Gay return to after their, their initial combat experience. And what we learn in 2024 is that there had been a ration war in 2007 because there was simultaneously a locust plague in North America. There was a rice blight in Southeast Asia and red tides on the Pacific coast of South America. And so there just was this ecological collapse. There was a big food shortage, and the United Nations took over food distribution and started using ration booklets representing calories. One of the things that happens during this time, and really what leads to the ration war, is that there's a vengeance group in Ecuador that begins assassinating people who appear to be well-fed. And this idea spreads, and soon there is just a, a class war all over the globe. Now, the UN regains control after about a year, and the population of the planet now is down to about 4 billion. And essentially what has happened here is that you know overpopulation and environmental damage has led to a massive humanitarian crisis, led to a global war, but then also to a type of uh, faceless totalitarian state that manages the entire economy and also manages this war. And I thought, Brandon, that maybe the best way to look at this society here, the society that Mandela and Mary Gay return home to would be to go through it kind of segment by segment. And I thought that we would maybe start by looking at the economy. And so I guess just as a question for you, Brandon, you know, what is the economy of this world like? Well, this is great because there's only one passage in the book that I wanted to quote. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. There are plenty of great passages in the novel, but you kind of hit me up for, uh, set me up for hitting a home run here. Um, yeah, Haldeman's a great writer. His like use of simile and metaphor is amazing. But there's a degree of prescience, I think, to some of what Haldeman predicts about Earth in the 21st century. Uh, and it has to do with the economy. And it's in my edition, which is the SF Masterworks edition, this is found on page 123. And this is about living in a war economy. So I'm going to read this out loud. And in the past, people whose country was at war were constantly in contact with the war. The newspapers would be full of reports. Veterans would return from the front. Sometimes the front would move right into town, invaders marching down Main Street or bombs whistling through the night air. But always the sense of either working toward victory or at least delaying defeat. The enemy was a tangible thing, a propagandist's monster whom you could understand, whom you could hate. But this war, the enemy was a curious organism only vaguely understood, more often the subject of cartoons than nightmares. The main effect of the war on the home front was economic, unemotional. More taxes, but more jobs as well. After 22 years, only 27 returned veterans, not enough to make a decent parade. The most important fact about the war to most people was that if it ended suddenly, Earth's economy would collapse. Now, this feels like the first 
quarter of the 21st century almost so far how uh, we've we've been fighting i mean it ended the war in afghanistan at least ended to you know a lot of uh, shame i think on, on america's part um but yeah the first 20 years of this century have been about how america's essentially a war economy and that needs to change and it's been really rough, I think, going through all the economic collapses and the recessions and all the things that are going on. Um, so there are two things to the economy. One is in the novel. One is it's a war economy. And the other one is money has been replaced by food tickets, which is basically what money is for many Americans today now. Yes. I mean, ultimately, that is what we use money for. It is to get the uh, you know goods that we require and, and services that we require as well to maintain our material ex- existence. That's what it's for, for sure. And, yeah. I mean, this is a scathing critique of the military industrial congressional complex. That's that's what's happening here, right? This is Haldeman uh, taking up the, the mantle of, of President Eisenhower here and criticizing the Cold War economy in which the state, uh, to some degree, runs the economy for the purpose of combating the Soviet Union and and maybe communism generally, and then of course little flare-ups like the Korean War and the Vietnam War. That that is exactly what we see here, and although Haldeman doesn't really say so in this book, I do think that he is with you there, Brandon, in saying that this is not a good idea and that we need to get off of this. We need to transition out of this. But we ourselves in the real world, right? We are having a hard time figuring out how to go from an economy that exists essentially to support aircraft carriers and nuclear missiles to a society that uses that money for things like schools and symphonies and science and so on. And that's definitely one of the things that Haldeman is critiquing here. He's very pessimistic, I think, about the future in general, based on what he's seen in uh, Vietnam and the way money is spent. You know, right now we're spending almost a trillion dollars a year on defense. And and Haldeman is asking the question, it wasn't nearly that much in the, in the 70s, but he's asking the question, what kind of political and economic system do we need to be under in order to justify that type of spending and also maintain it or vote for budget increases on that amount of money as well? Uh, and, and Haldeman, I think, really saw the writing on the wall in Vietnam and, and really questioned the value of having a society that's essentially subordinate to the defense industry. Yeah, it's on a really broad level, roughly speaking. There's tons of money to go around, but um, you know, it's an easy kind of point to to pick up on, um, especially in anti-war novels and films that are looking at, you know, what does society have to be and and what do we have to how do we have to live as a society to justify that type of that type of spending. And to be fair, Haldeman's 2024 is a lot bleaker than ours is going to be. I mean, a lot bleaker <laughs> right. than ours is going to be. And maybe I'll characterize- They do have airships though. So we know it's the future. They do. The airships are cool. There's some other cool elements to this future, material elements to this future as well. But this is a, you know, it's a single global state at this point. All the jobs are controlled by the government. Although there's this interesting black market for jobs kind of scheme system that was fun to read about, though clearly terrible to actually live in. But this is also a world that really struggles with overpopulation in direct ways, in ways that our world is not, right? This is a crisis that is precipitated largely by 
overpopulation, even the ecological catastrophe is really presented in terms of uh, being a crisis of overpopulation. And so the problems here are, how do we get enough food for as many people as there are? And also, how can we encourage there to be fewer people? And so one of the things that really characterizes this world is that People are encouraged to leave cities and move to uh, UN farming reservations to take up subsistence farming. And you know there are many methods that they use to encourage people to do this. But one of the problems is that once people become farmers, they start having large families. And so the population has actually doubled again from what it fell to at the low point of the, the ration war. And this is the real problem that the government is trying to manage, is getting enough food for everybody. One of the solutions has been to convert almost all wilderness, including national parks, into agriculture. This is something that really bothers Mandela. This is, I think, one of the actually important beats in his decision to, to re-enlist. So even just from this economic perspective, this is a a bleak world, a bleaker world than our 2024 is going to be. But we also get a a, a big uh, a picture here of urban life, and well, it's pretty awful. But this is actually one of the places where, in addition to the uh, the zeppelins or the the, the dirigibles, uh, we get a kind of cool <laughs> material element to the sci finess of 2024, where everything is high rises. These are self contained worlds, uh, very much like in. Ballard's High Rise, which is another book that we read for that book club 15 years ago. Uh, <laughs> we get like the 47th floor of Mandela's mother's building. It's just this huge mall. And these buildings, uh, these high rises, they're they're roughly conical. And Mandela describes them as jumbles of granite with trees growing at odd places. And so although Haldeman doesn't really describe any of this to us, it does even seem like these high rises are are meant to be responding to this ecological crisis. And in fact, this is something that we're considering doing. Well, not even considering doing. Places are doing this. Cities around the world are trying to turn their high rises into forests. Uh, I think Milan is a place actually where a lot of this is happening, Milan and, and Singapore. Uh, and so that was pretty cool. But the urban life is not just uh, architecture and city planning and the logistics of dirigibles. Uh Urban life here, in fact, not even just urban life, life everywhere is characterized by high crime. And Brandon, this is something you were in, invoking already in, in thinking about what is it that even compelled Mandela and Mary Gay to re-enlist in the first place? Well, it's really heartbreaking. I mean, Mary Gay's family has a much worse time of it than Mandela's mother does. His father has died. Um, but actually, it, it just turns out that that's the case. It doesn't initially seem like that's the case. Mandela goes to live with Mary Gay's family, and we have a brief pastoral scene. I think it's only two paragraphs, but I'm here for it. I, I think people <laughs> who've listened to this show for a long time know I love pastorals. You know, I was immediately thinking of, um, uh, I don't know, the scene in Anna Karenina when one of the characters goes on for pages and pages about, you know, leaping with peasants in the field and how nice it is to do a day's labor. And, you know, even though he's the owner and he has serfs, you know, it's just whatever. I love, I love, uh, I love a good paragraph about farming. And we get that. Here, Mandela goes to Mary Gay's family's house. They live in a commune that seems like a pretty cool place to live, kind of stuck in the 1950s, maybe. Um, but they have lost their identity and uh, are now forced 
to live this way, which is a pretty good way to live, it turns out. Uh, farming in one of these illegal communes that is sanctioned unofficially by the government so that uh, they can get more food this way. So there's kind of like a food tax for living like this. But you have to watch out for raiders. Uh, and that's a huge issue. And the family, Mary Gay's family, gets killed. And both Mary Gay and Mandela use their training to kill other desperate people. And they both feel like this is not an earth I can live on. And they're invited to go to the moon. And they do, but they only get there for about 20 minutes before they're reassigned to combat <laughs> duty stations. Right. And this attack on the, the the countryside farm with its defensive perimeter and gun towers and so on, this happens after they've already been attacked in London. Uh, Mandela, when he's in DC, staying with his mother, is, is also attacked where it just turns out there are people just riding in the elevators trying to mug people. All of this because food is a scarcity. Nobody is able to, well, not nobody, but most people are not able to get enough to eat. And so they are having to find ways to get food from from people who have it. And so violence and crime really characterizes this society. Uh, Mandela's mother you know, goes around with a bodyguard and she and tells Mandela he has to get a bodyguard as as well, though, of course, he's, he's a combat veteran, so he thinks he can take care of himself. It turns out that he really can't. And so it turns out, right, that going home again in this sense is just as violent uh, as actual combat is and feels worse to him than than the combat does because combat at least is is what it says on the box it's combat but going back to civilian life isn't supposed to have that element but earth is being so poorly managed it's being so mismanaged that that is the case that's what he finds there and the government has tried to do some things to prevent some of this to find things for people to do, but not very well. It seems like there's a lot of good ideas and terrible execution on them. Like the element here that jumped out the most to me was education, where there now is uh, 18 years of compulsory education. So you're going to be in your 20s before you're done with compulsory education, as opposed to a teenager like it is now for us. You have to pass some exams in order to be eligible for any kind of job or any kind of uh, government uh, subsistence, government relief. And you can see where some of that might be a, a good idea, right? Delaying uh, people's need to get into the Labor force, for example, has been a, a pretty common tactic of governments since the Second World War. The GI Bill that both of us used to fund our college education wasn't so much designed so that veter to reward veterans with a college education. It was so they wouldn't go looking for jobs all at the same time. And uh, you know, so that's kind of what's happening here. But it doesn't work very well, and the education itself is not real education and is perhaps part of the problem where we're told that most people do their last five or six years of schooling by uh, watching educational videos at a home or in a community center. And we're told explicitly that the UN has 40 or 50 information channels giving instruction 24 hours a day. And so the whole idea here is that this is a society that has lost sight of what education even means, that they think education means instruction, right? that it means stuff you should know, and you can, you can come to know that stuff by watching TV by yourself. 
And so you can see where even the attempts to solve the problems are actually making problems worse. As I said, I mean, it's just a very bleak portrait of the future. And, you know, Haldeman knows he's, he must have read some history books here and there that nothing this terrible lasts forever. I mean, eventually something uh, grows out of uh, soil this this rank. But, um, you know, it, it, when he goes home, I think... Uh, when Mandela goes home, I think he's just shocked with the savagery of his own society and would rather, as we said, play play under the rules of savagery that makes sense to him, where at least there's a real enemy and not just desperate people, or at least the propaganda says that there's a real enemy. It's easier to believe that there's a real enemy. And I think that's what appeals to Mandela as he as he decides to to change gears and get back into the military. One more thing that we should talk about here before we, we look at what actually we don't see in this world is that you know, the population problem is really the number one problem here. And the government is engaging in some bit of cultural engineering in order to begin limiting reproduction. And this becomes a major motif of the book. And this is that the government is encouraging homosexuality that will not lead to uh, reproduction here as a means of limiting the number of people on the planet. Se sex is a huge element in this novel. And I mean, having sex, not like gender. <laughs> um, and, you know, there, there's a few different ways, I guess, we can look at this. Haldeman is engaging with uh, people having sex as both a, a procreative activity you know, as we've been talking about, population control has become a concern of the government, but then also as a as a leisure as a leisure activity. And I think that Haldeman had a lot of time to think about the function of sex in in society uh, while he was surrounded maybe by other dudes in Vietnam or <laughs> any other time where he had a lot of downtime. So there's the the element of of sex within the ranks of a of uh, military with uh, both male and female soldiers. And people are kind of have to have sex with other people. You know, men have to have sex with women. Women have to have sex with men um, while they're on the ship because everybody's got to blow off some steam. And, you know, it's, it's all recreational. You know, there's uh, nothing about sex for soldiers that is about the consummation of romantic feelings um, and, you know, we encountered this sort of thing in the, in, in the military before. We saw it in Gene Wolfe's novella, Silhouette. But, Glenn, as you've been pointing out as well, especially in this first part of the novel, we see the foreshadowing of uh, what kind of becomes Haldeman's preoccupation with the question of maybe if sex is just uh, recreative, it, it maybe doesn't matter who you have sex with at all. And uh, what is the role that homosexuality then can play in a society that views already views sex that way? And I think Holtman has a pretty soft view about this, though Mandela is uncomfortable with it. His mother is revealed to be in a lesbian relationship with her roommate. You know, I think this book takes the takes the t tack that homosexuality can be engineered. You talk about it as a mode of social engineering. Um, it becomes something in the far future that the government can switch on and off as needed. Uh, but eventually, homosexual sex becomes the norm. The idea of romantic love sort of goes away. And 
hold them in search for home then uh, as the novel continues is really a search for the domesticity that grows out of romantic feelings good old fashioned love he might th- mandela might think of it as so yeah this novel's really preoccupied with uh, not just sex as recreation versus procreation but then also homosexuality as a key component to social engineering sex and sexuality is the the thing that haldeman picked here to show us major cultural change over time. This is a big part of the the physics element of this science fiction novel, where we are seeing a person experience a thousand years of history in a normal biological lifetime and wanting to see the world you know, changing around him. It's this kind of Rip Van Winkle story. And this is the thing that Haldeman has picked in order to show us change, to show us a person feeling alienated from that world, not not fitting in. And I think it works really well, I think, for for showing us a character who just can't go home again because the home that he knew is is gone, even to the extent that it would be difficult for him to find a, a sexual partner, a, a romantic partner in this world, that a, a, an important part of an important part of life, an important part of what it means to be a person is no longer available to him in this culture. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, though, I mean, I, I love Haldeman's attitude here, which is, um, you know, the, essentially sort of the, the uh, attitude of these are my neighbors. They're my friends. They're my coworkers. You know, they're my parents. That there's no us versus them. There's simply Mandela's old-fashioned discomfort that he needs to get over in order to do his job, in order to function socially. But there's always uh, that yearning for what he calls home. And I think that that's a really fair look at uh, the the question of going home, and not just to a place that has changed because crime is up and the currency has changed and all this stuff, but sexual norms have changed. And we know, you know, you can read World War II novels, you can read Vietnam novels about Vietnam, you can read soldiers' personal uh, journals and memoirs and things like that. Sex is a big part of war, uh, I guess, no matter when war is taking place. And, uh, I love the way that Haldeman is engaging with that in in this story and making strange things for Mandela that make it hard for him to kind of function anywhere. A huge part of science fiction, but also conversations about real world space exploration in the second half of the 20th century, really hinged about really hinged on the question of, but who are people going to have sex with? when they're in space. And so that we see that here. We see it in Gene Wolfe's novella Silhouette, which we've covered on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. And you brought that up a little bit earlier, Brandon. And it's it's in uh, it's in Poole Anderson's classic Tau Zero, just just a few examples, but it's really everywhere. It was kind of an obsession, actually, of of this period. I I don't know that it's something that we're obsessing about in our science fiction or our space colonization planning uh, to the extent that we're doing that uh, anymore. But it's an interesting artifact here uh, from that perspective. But I want to wrap up thinking about 2024, Brandon, by looking at Haldeman's dystopia from the perspective of what he doesn't show us about this world, what we don't see. And I think for me, the biggest thing that we don't see here about this political system that 
is clearly being presented to us as a dark mirror, uh, as, as an example of something we should not do. We don't get any information about who gets to be in charge and why. We don't actually, we learn an awful lot about the bureaucracy, but we don't actually learn a lot about the government itself and who's in it and how they came to be in it, how and how they wield power. I don't think it's of interest to Mandela. It might be to Haldeman. I'm not sure. But at least to Mandela, it doesn't feel like that's his interest. This novel is really about Mandela's on-the-ground subjective experiences. So all he needs to know is that the same people who are screwing up this war and are screwing up Earth. And that's kind of the sense I get. When when he describes the economy of Earth as being a war economy that has lost touch with the war, where the citizens have no stake in the war, and that it's all in service to the war, I think he's pointing to the disappointment or the breakdown of the government where it is in service to the same people who are interested in waging war to enrich themselves. And I think that that's Mandela's experience, and that's his approach then to thinking about government. And I think that it matters that the government is really faceless here, that it is characterized really just as a type of bureaucracy that doesn't seem to have anyone in charge, right? This might actually be a representative democracy, but we have no idea. Mandela doesn't ever comment on that one way or the other. Uh, it might be a kingdom, or maybe it's a you know hereditary monarchy. Now we we have no idea. We we don't know anything about the actual political system here, which is a pretty strong contrast to uh, what we get in Heinlein, what we get in Starship Troopers, which has a lot to say about who gets to be in charge and why. But something else that's missing here, Brandon, is any kind of ideology, whether that's an ideology about a political system or a set of political values, which is you know how we define ourselves as Americans as being you know a freedom-loving democracy, for example. There's also no glimpse here of an ideology of war here either, right? We don't get any sense that as Mandela is wandering around DC or London, that there are you know, propaganda posters or any kind of, of displays in any way about, you know, everything that we're doing, all the sacrifices that we're making are so we can kill the baddies. There's nothing like that. There's a remarkable absence of ideology. One thing that that came out during the pandemic, during the the lockdowns and the, you know, it's not over, but the the two years that were really about locked down and and feeling like resources were scarce and the government was wasn't doing enough to address this scarcity or the fact that we couldn't get the things we needed or prices were out of control whatever it is was the, the comments about people no longer belonging to like communities or the feeling of uh, a society but that we were merely just economic actors Right, which has been a big part of the way uh, the American government has addressed Americans as consumers. Right, is that we're we're kind of primarily economic actors made to keep the economy going, and I think Mandela sees that as kind of uh, the hidden ideology behind everything. Currency to buy anything has been replaced by food stamps which have turned into currency, which can be used to purchase commodities by trading the food stamps. But everything is primarily about a survival mechanism. 
and a desperation that defines everything. And the institutions that run the world uh, are only interested in solving one or two problems and not addressing any of the other problems. And so you'd think ideology would have a real home there. It would be able to slide in and guide people and you know, rally them up and get them to believe something about what needs to change or whatever. But I think that Mandela is also maybe projecting his mentality onto the people in the world. You get that kind of push and pull, that conflict, especially when he's talking to his mother about uh, how he thinks she's just surviving and her life is really terrible and she's caught up in all these schemes. But she's like, it's not, it's not that bad. Like, this is just what we're used to now. Um, and so I think that in part, whether it's Haldeman's intent or not, uh, Mandela is projecting his sense of desperation and survival onto what he sees in the broader society. And so he's not really looking. He doesn't have the mental energy or the mental space to really see any ideology functioning beyond people as these kind of pure economic actors out of their own sense of desperation and need to survive. I think that's absolutely right. But I nonetheless was surprised that there is no program by by the government or even subtle program by the government to uh, hide all of that from people which is you know how we're right. how we're living right i mean i, it's I what think ideology I, is for right it's, it, it is it what it's for. whether or not we believe it but it it's still there to function Absolutely. And just taking a, a step back from our own culture and, and looking at the, th the, especially our political culture and looking at the things that politicians want to argue about and give speeches about as they're you know competing for our votes, all of it seems like it's a big distraction from the actual way we live our lives and how that system is perhaps not the best system for the best of all possible worlds. And, you know, that is the type of ideology that we have in our, our lives right now. And I, I guess if I were writing this book, if I were showing this 2024, that's one of the things that I would have focused on. And so I, I was just surprised that uh, it's not here at all, though it's also very interesting that it's not here at all. But I think that really brings our look at 2024 to a close. Though, of course, we're, we're about to go live in actual 2024. So maybe we'll revisit that <laughs> New Year's got, Eve 2024. We've got two years to find out uh, just how bad it's going to get. <laughs> but there are some other future human civilizations that we get. Maybe I'll just sum these up a little bit. These are things that we get glimpses of as... Mandela is meeting people who have been born hundreds of years after him uh, whenever he's not you know traveling at uh, uh, light speed or near light speed uh, stopping at training facilities getting his promotions getting his new unit and so on he's meeting new people who can tell him what's been happening in the hundred years or 300 years since he last checked in and so there are a few things that we learn one that I think is really interesting is that there was a pacifist movement at some point where veterans, uh, really survivors of two especially bloody battles, tried a revolution against the United Nations and uh, in fact got lots of support but ultimately lost. We also learned that the promotion of homosexuality as a form of birth control works, that at some point after 2458, everybody on earth is homosexual and New humans are not born. They are uh, test tube babies. They're used for a one-to-one a -one replacement of the dead. And so population becomes stable at just under a billion, the population of the earth, I mean. And then 
childhood and, and, and families have, have changed a lot. This is a major cultural change for Mandela. We've talked about that already. But children aren't growing up in families. They grow up in holistic schools, essentially, in which the only adults are teachers and doctors and a handful of other types of specialists. Kids stay there until age 13, at which time they have the equivalent of a a university education, and then they work for a little while. And then at age 20, everybody is drafted into the uh, United Nations Expeditionary Force. Uh, Most of them work a kind of uh, desk job, and only one out of 8,000 becomes an actual combat soldier. And another effect of this is that races, as Mandela understood them, are largely gone, that most humans, because they are test tube babies, most humans look essentially the same. And in fact, this was a program that was carried out by something called the Eugenics Council because racism was having an unnecessarily divisive effect on humanity. And so this is a problem that has been solved through tampering with people's uh, physiology at the genetic level. And so these are some of the, the major changes that happen while Mandela is traveling at near light speed and centuries are passing for years of his uh, personal existence. You know, these examples of other civilizations are, in Haldeman's mind, uh, an attempt to address the problems that plague kind of our our mundane existence, right? We have racism, major problem. A lot of wars are fought with, you know, what we'd call different races. Vietnam was one uh, that was particularly defined by race and, I, and by which I mean racial propaganda is a big part of uh, war fighting, even in something like World War One uh, or the uh, Western Front in World War Two, where it's Europeans fighting uh, other Europeans. There's still room to make racial distinctions. You know, some of this was based on nationality. Obviously, World War II was caught up a lot in race and racism uh, as well, and racial genocide, which also became a problem in uh, post-World War II throughout uh, huge parts of the world. So, you know, this is humanity trying to address these issues. But the thing that still defines humanity in these civilizations is it's submission to the military industrial complex it's it's society being based on a desire to fight wars and to organize itself around war fighting and so these problems i think in holdman's view which are very real and should be addressed by uh, social change uh better education, whatever, what have you. Um, not the population stuff. We don't need a eugenics council. But all of it is based on uh, these human hu- human conflicts with one another. And so Haldeman says, okay, we get rid of all of those. What still drives humanity? And it's still conflict. And that is, I think, the core part of Mandela learning about all of these different civilizations in the novel is that we can solve all of these problems. Conflict is still in the human DNA. Right. This world of the the 25th century and and beyond is a much, much, much better world than 2024. We don't 
visit it. We don't spend as much time with it. But it is clear that this is a world that has solved most of the problems of the dystopia of the early 21st century in a, a positive way. And it seems like this is a world that would feel better for Mandela to return to if he were able to. Nonetheless, this is still a society that is prosecuting this forever war, still for reasons unclear, perhaps entirely unknown. And in fact, we're going to find out at the end, right, that the whole thing was a big misunderstanding. We'll learn a little bit more about that. But ultimately, this is not even the last civilization that we find because Mandela doesn't get out of the military for another few centuries. And when he does, uh, he's on the last ship of soldiers coming home. And the society he finds now is a society in which all humans are clones of some ideal model of humanity. And there also seem to be a lot of uh, computers, uh, AIs, I guess we might think of them as now, and robots and so on that are doing a lot of the work. And so in the thousand years of the forever war, we have gone from uh, natural reproduction to uh, test tube babies, and then finally to clones. And we have gone through a, a population crisis where there's not enough food for everybody, also not enough work for everybody to function in a capitalist society, to a society in which people don't really need to work at all. And so I'm faced with, Brandon, at the end, a question of whether or not this post-war human civilization that Mandela finds himself in, at least temporarily, is a, a type of utopia for, for Haldeman. And if, if not, what is Haldeman's utopia? I think it is in some ways. First of all, it's really hard, I think, to uh, emphasize the degree to which technology leading to leisure is kind of, at least in the you know, 50s, 60s, and, and maybe part of the 70s in science fiction writing, was the goal of technology. And in these military science fiction books, um, that, especially in this one, in, in Forever War, we see that all this technology eventually does lead to leisure, though it has a major destructive force as well. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Something we've forgotten as a society in our technological culture, uh, a culture obsessed with technique and uh, technological progress is that this should be leading somewhere, right? We're not just breaking eggs and putting, putting them into a bowl until we have a bowl of unscrambled eggs, right? Like we should be trying to make an omelet at some point. What is that omelet going to be? I still like the leisure goal. And I think that Haldeman does too. And I think he's put Mandela finally at a place where he has leisure. And so this place, uh, the middle finger, it's called, uh, is a place like Earth. People are free to procreate or recreate sexually. Uh, money and other needs are addressed by governing powers. There's no war. Um, and it's a place where you know that you're one of only a handful of real people in a universal federation of clones. Now that might not sound utopian like utopianistic. And I did say it a little facetiously, but I do think there's a moat of truth to it. This is a major part of American ideology and American identity. Uh, it's, it's kind of reared its ugly head in the past few years, but this belief that you're the only real person in a room full of suits or a society full of sheep or whatever, and 
maybe I shouldn't say that this is Haldeman's ultimate utopia, but I think he is capturing something about the promise of, of technological progress and about Mandela's American identity as he maintains this belief in his own uniqueness and uh, ability to be authentic in a world of people who want to make him more uniformly like others, which is really what the military is, but it's also kind of a weirdly American belief as well. I mean, what this feels like at the end is that Mandela and Mary Gay and and other old-timey veterans of this forever war, they've gone and set up a commune. And they're going to turn that commune into a technologically sophisticated agricultural paradise, I think, is is the idea. There is a lot of, of pastoralism here. I think, ultimately, Mandela and Mary Gay are going to get to live the type of life they thought they were going to get to live on that community farm with Mary Gay's parents in 2024. But this is a society that has solved all of the problems that made that actually a dystopia rather than a utopia. But I do think that a really important element of this book is the handful of passages that we get about pastoralism and about nature. Uh, I mentioned that a big element for Mandela is that the national parks are gone in 2024, that there's nowhere he can go out into the wilderness and be alone. And then this final planet that they settle on is... Uh, a a type of a a wilderness paradise that they're going to get. But even in between those two things, Mandela and Mary Gay end up on a planet that is called Heaven, that is essentially a kind of hospital world where soldiers are being, uh, with grave injuries, are being put back together and sent back to the front. And Haldeman writes this beautiful passage. He writes, Heaven was a lovely, unspoiled, earth-like world. What earth might have been like if men had treated her with compassion instead of lust. Virgin forests, white beaches, pristine deserts. The few dozen cities there either blended perfectly with the environment or were brazen statements of human ingenuity. And I think this passage, I think this really is the tightest statement of Halden's utopic vision, right? That this is Haldeman's idea of a utopia is is this planet, this planet heaven, a world where people have treated the planet with compassion instead of lust, and humans have found a way to live in some kind of harmony with nature, meaning that scarcity isn't a problem, therefore meaning that conflict isn't a problem, and having lots of beautiful natural environment for us to feel well and healthy in. And uh, I'll be honest, I'm sold. I would like to move to either of these places. I think it's still crucial, though, for Haldeman that he that Mandela end up on a planet where labor is still required, but the conditions under which labor is uh, cursed have been basically removed. Right, like he, they don't have to farm for food because that problem is already taken care of. They can choose to have labor and leisure as they wish, and uh, so I think that 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 kind of rugged, the rugged nature. Not fully reined in nature of the middle finger, I think, is what is important to Haldeman as well as he thinks about where to place Mandela at the end of the book. He doesn't want to put him in convalescence. He wants to give him some sort of final agency, which means labor. So another question I have for you, Brandon, about the extent to which this is a utopic vision or really what is Haldeman's utopic 
vision uh, before we get into comparing this part of the book to Starship Troopers is whether or not you think Haldeman ultimately has a positive view of human nature or a negative view. I, I really struggle to make sense of this this final end of the book, other than what I kind of said about this this strange American insistence on being the one who knows what's going on or has some perspective and everybody else is a, is a sheep or a suit. Uh, I don't know. I read, I really read the end of the book as, as, as kind of mostly pessimistic that, um, that there's a sense of, of loss, a certain kind of tragic loss with most of humanity being clones in order to just run the bureaucratic and technological processes that allow for, that provide the grounds of the rest of the real humans living the kind of life that they want. And I think there's a deep cynicism and pessimism in, in looking at humanity in that way. Yeah, I think there's a lot of pessimism in this book as well. In fact, I'm going to read a fairly long passage just to illustrate this. And uh, the book, the, the and the edition of the book that I used is the is a book published by Thomas Dunn Books. And this passage I'm about to read is from page uh, 77. Mandela says, "I spent a long time after that telling myself over and over that it hadn't been me who so gleefully carved up those frightened, stampeding creatures." Back in the 20th century, they had established to everybody's satisfaction that I was just following orders was an inadequate excuse for inhuman conduct. But what can you do when the orders come from deep down in that puppet master of the unconscious? Worst of all was the feeling that perhaps my actions weren't all that inhuman. Ancestors only a few generations back would have done the same thing, even to their fellow men, without any hypnotic conditioning. I was disgusted with the human race, disgusted with the army, and horrified at the prospect of living with myself for another century or so. And there's some other passages in this book about how you can take uh, a Zen master, a peaceful Zen master, and condition him into a savage, bloodthirsty warrior. And so this is a question, I think, that appears throughout the book. But I, I'm ultimately left, actually, with the idea that Haldeman has a positive view of human nature that where he thinks we go wrong is in inventing civilization, inventing societies, perhaps maybe inventing governments that have the ability to manipulate us, to alter us, to convince us to be unhuman, to be inhuman in some way. And so I think I have a real feeling here that that Haldeman's utopic vision is a kind of uh, is a kind of anarchy, a kind of a communal, anarchy. It's a, a world where it's a world without government, a world without systems, a world in which humans are living in uh, nature in a, a type of Eden, not a, not a world without work, as you've pointed out, not a world without labor and hardship, but a world without rulers. I mean, I feel like this, we could do a whole episode just on this question in this book, right? Because there's so many uh, textual moments where Haldeman, as you read, was is very cynical towards humanity. And the way we're reading this ultimate end, I see that Haldeman is smart enough to realize that even a society like the one that Mandela ends up in requires certain grounds for its existence. And I think that Haldeman is showing us that there's an uncomfortable sort of detente between 
the society that hold, that Mandela finds himself in and the larger conditions under which that society is even allowed to exist, which is that this kind of super society of clones and computers is giving them permission to not be interfered with. And so there's a real discomfort for me at the end of this novel with Haldeman recognizing that anything could change should the real power decide that things need to change on this planet, in particular, or any planet run by humans, and that the detente is based on the fact that the clones are smart enough to know, should their genetic perfection fail on some level, should something unforeseen come to pass, they're going to need humans to continue to have a human race. And so I think that there's this discomfort baked in, even at the very end of the novel. This is a bad place to put this comment. It should have gone at the front, but simply to say that uh, there's sequels to this book that we haven't read. <laughs> and so uh, some of these questions actually might be answered by reading the sequels, but we we have not read them. That's uh, part of the part of the game that we are playing here with our approach to this. Well, let me move us into our, our second to last segment here and the, really wrapping up looking at this book as a work of political science fiction. And again, to situate this in conversation with Starship Troopers, which we have been leaning into significantly less than when we were thinking about this as a military science fiction story. But nonetheless, I think there are some real clear ways in which this story is a response to Starship Troopers. For one, we are told that the people who run the United Nations, who started this war in the 1990s, were old soldiers, and they saw the world through the lens of war. And so they misunderstood the situation with the Torrens and even ignored evidence that the Torrens hadn't had anything to do with the the disappearing spaceship that was the catalyst for this entire war. Also, we're told that Earth needed a war to jumpstart an economy in a way that was unifying rather than divisive. And to me, this seems like a direct response to Heinlein's depiction of veterans' councils saving Earth from its own chaos. I mean, you can't help but to think that Haldeman is really poking at what Heinlein's done with veterans running the world in Starship Troopers when he points out, Glenn, as you did, that the vets tried to throw a coup over the uh, UNEF and they and they lost. And so, you know, they weren't even strong enough to, to overthrow the government, much less run it, even though the incitement for the war was based on this kind of veteran thinking. Right. So Heinlein's solution, the, the, the number one thing he's advocating in Starship Troopers is a political system in which only veterans get to be a part of the selectorate. And it's clear that Haldeman is saying that that's a bad idea right now. And I think even right. if you took Vietnam veterans who want to bring an end to the war and try to give them some power, that that is not going to work out either. So yes, that's definitely a place where Haldeman is engaging with Heinlein. But I think more broadly, even you know this business with 2024, I think really matters because Heinlein shows us in Starship Troopers a, a militaristic society with this strong central government, but he presents that to us as a type of paradise. Haldeman is showing us the same thing. It's a, a militaristic society with a strong central government, but for Haldeman, this is clearly a type of hell, not a type of paradise. 
Right. What, what, what's really the point of contrast here isn't so much, I think, in the specifics and the, the points that Haldeman might be trying to dismantle in Heinlein's work. It's, it's an attitude. And I think that, you know, for people who have been in the military during a pointless forever war, especially at, you know, the junior enlisted level, uh, there's a real question about the degree to which the people in charge should be allowed to run anything at all, right? <laughs> and I think I think that's the real uh, point at which Haldeman and Heinlein diverge. I think Haldeman brings a lot of that energy to the whole book, even when Mandela is a major. He still questions just about every order he's given, but he still executes and he learns a lot of cool leadership stuff because that's what leaders do. Leaders still have to lead. But there's a sense in which this text or Haldeman is asking uh, why, even when people have enough authority to change things, they don't change things, even when they know that they're stupid and wrong and are going to get a lot of people killed. You know, is it just for an economy? Is it for a sense of survival? Is it because they don't have anything else to fall back on? Why does authority and why do leaders not change things when they have power to change them? Right. Heinlein is fundamentally, in Starship Troopers, the, the world that he's showing us anyway, right? That is a world that is fundamentally undemocratic, right? The idea there is that we're only going to allow veterans to be a part of the selectorate because veterans will know what it means to sacrifice for the state, and they also will have received a, a rigorous training in uh, moral history, and therefore they will always make decisions that are for the, the good of everybody. And you and I, when we covered Starship Troopers, were very skeptical of how that would not necessarily how that would work, but how that would last, right? Because we see that once groups have power, they start to wield that power so that they can continue to wield power at the exclusion of other people or wield that power for themselves. And that is a problem that Heinlein was simply ignoring. And it's one here that Haldeman, I think, really confronts by not even bothering to tell us how the government is selected in this world. It doesn't it doesn't matter. The people have the people who have power have power and they're going to keep it. They are keeping it. And the mechanisms don't even matter. The the, the mechanisms themselves are just kind of part of the magic trick. And I I think I'm more inclined to see the world through Haldeman's perspective here than Heinlein's. But nonetheless, both of them are looking at ways to solve the problems of industrial capitalism. They're looking around the world of the, the mid-20th century and seeing uh, strife and uh, scarcity and, and problems that arise from that and attempting to solve those problems and, and show us a system that does actually solve them. Uh, for Heinlein, it is the world of st Starship Troopers, the world that we get. For Haldeman, it's this world of circa you know, the, the, the 25th century and beyond, before we get to the cloning, I guess, is the world that I'm thinking of here. But Heinlein's solution to these problems, the, the problems of, of inequality and scarcity, and then the strife that emerges from that, is ideology and cultural change, right? His solution is essentially to use ideology and culture, propaganda, to put the poor and the middle classes in their place and teach them to like it there, uh, or, you know, <laughs> to be brutally punished. That's Heinlein's solution. Haldeman's solution to these problems, the problems of industrial capitalism, 
really rely on reducing the number of people and therefore removing the scarcity. Uh, though, you know, we don't really see how people are living at this point. We don't really see any of the mechanisms for that. I mean, one thing that Haldeman is pointing out is that all of this will lead to some kind of collectivism. Uh, and that, you know, is the kind of critique of, you know, Maoism, for instance, at the at this time, at the time this book is being written. And, you know, Haldeman is, okay, if we have a world government, if the earth is going to be taken over by an ideology, if things are going to continue on this negative path for so long, collectivism might be the only solution. And so that's another reason why I question whether or not this is a novel that is uh, really optimistic, ultimately, of humanity at its end, when it's looking at the United States generating another ideological enemy out of whole cloth, and, you know, which we're still living with the resonances of, um, and attacking collectivism. And Haldeman is saying, well, maybe that's really all that's left for humanity, except, you know, maybe there are a few true Americans out there <laughs> um, living their lives to the best of their ability in some kind of rugged, rugged garden terrain. All right. Well, Brandon, let's finish this episode up as we are uh, closing in on the two hour mark here by just offering some final thoughts. So doing some, some zoomed out assessment of this book. What are some of the weaknesses of this book? Well, I would have read a whole novel about Mandela and Mary Gay trying to make a place for themselves in the far future year of 2024. Uh, you know, I loved that stuff about this book. The, the, the officer stuff mostly didn't work for me, I guess. Uh, it wasn't bad. I think the narrow battle just felt so much like a slog, but we covered that pretty well and, and even maybe turned around my attitude on it. But, you know, maybe it's because I have a cell phone or something or I was feeding my kid a bottle. But the the, the 30 pages or so that constitute the denouement, uh, the last battle of the, the novel, so to speak, were just a trouble for me to get through. It, it could have been a pacing problem. Um, it could have been just that I was reading this novel under the conditions that I was. But um, I found the rest of the novel to be very engaging and speedy. So there may have been a pacing issue at the end there. But I think the real issue at the end of the battle, and we touched on this a little bit, the, this final battle, the real issue for me, though, is that Mandela knows so little about the Torrens. And the stakes in the battle are seemingly low, so low for the army as a whole, uh, but they're really high for Mandela. So there's a no point where we as readers feel as though what Mandela is fighting for and what the army is for fighting for really align and coalesce. There's no moment of unity there. So to linger on what really amounts to a sort of synchronic account, you know, a moment by moment account of this final battle, it just felt a little out of place in a book that is really interested in so much change over time. But I guess, I don't know, maybe what bugged me most about it is that this final battle reminded me so much of the way that uh, Christopher Nolan has been making movies with big battles in them without any real enemy present during said battles. Uh, this happens in Dunkirk. This happens in Tenet. And then I started to think about how this book is caught up with a lot of like Christopher Nolan's own preoccupations. 
And then I thought about what it would be like to get a Christopher Nolan Forever War adaptation. And I don't want a Christopher Nolan Forever War adaptation. <laughs> and I got real cranky. And I think that that might have been at the root of all my problems with this novel. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed the final battle sequence. And, uh, you know, I, I, th- I guess I've done my best already to offer up a defense of it. So I won't I won't do it again. I think but- you've, you've turned me around on, I think. But these are what my notes say. And I don't have a backup. <laughs> well, I think for me, what what doesn't work for me in this book, at least on this reading of it, and this is my, I think, probably fifth reading of it, is the the Malthusian trap stuff, the idea that all of society's ills are because of overpopulation. And it's it's really just a, a simple matter of arithmetic. There's more people than there is food, and that creates problems. And that the fundamental thing we need to do to solve all of our problems is uh, fix that arithmetic. That just has not aged well for me, though, you know, to be fair, it's all over science fiction, even into the the 1980s. But yeah, Haldeman's understanding of the ills of society, it's just kind of dated. And so this to me did not feel as a exciting as a bit of political science fiction as it as it did I think the first time I read this book closer to 1997 when this this war starts but I think for me on the other hand the the, the strength of this book uh, that I was kind of surprised to find myself actually enjoying as much as I I did because what always had lingered in my memory was that I enjoyed this as a bit of political science fiction was the soldier's experience of war. I thought this was phenomenal, including the final battle. And so I really, really loved this as a a work of military science fiction. At the time, relativity stuff is well done as well. The confusion about essentially waking up centuries in the future is is pretty great. And and, you know, in the end, you and I have, I guess, maybe some small gripes or things that we liked less than other elements of the book. But to be clear, The Forever War is an absolute masterpiece. And everyone who's interested in the history of speculative fiction should read this book. Yeah, it's really hard to ding this novel for too much. I mean, maybe there's a, a subset of the homosexual stuff that has aged poorly. I think Haldeman was trying to be progressive there, uh, but whatever. I mean, the, the larger points that Haldeman is making about war and coming home and the systems that drive war and why war is waged, you're right about the scarcity and population stuff being, um, you, you know, you call it a Malthusian trap. I, I'm going to call it a blind alley. I mean, you're not going to get out of that. Uh, I think nobody's going to look good coming out of that. I think it's it's misguided. But, you know, the, the, the larger, more abstract stuff of asking the question, why do we keep having wars? Um, all of it is as important today as when Haldeman wrote the novel. You know, for me, the real strength is the coming home section of the novel, the, f- the flights around the world with the lover, the real human interaction stuff, the parts of the novel where the human need for relationships and companionships outweigh personal preference, outweigh protocols, outweigh orders. You know, to me, that stuff really shone brightly in my reading of the novel this time. You know, I love the early military stuff as well, the, the basic training, the first battle, all of it's really good. And I, I'm going to tell you, I was just as moved by the end of this novel as I was the first time that I read it years ago. The The conclusion with William and Mary Gay finding one another, her letter to him, it's just beautiful and touching and almost makes it seem as though all this crap uh, with the wars was worth it. And I, and I think that Haldeman just does a beautiful job with the human relationships. I mean, this is all just 
really reminding me that maybe I should just go reread A Farewell to Arms. <laughs> yeah, well, that's always solid advice. And yeah, I think the, the romance with Mary Gay worked for me this reading more than it ever has before. And in fact, to me, that was a, a major element of the book. I kind of just wanted to read an entire rom-com about their relationship. The, yeah. the business where she almost died really had me to tears. And perhaps one thing we should say more explicitly than we have, that we have brought it up, is that you, you read this book largely with a baby in your arms. And uh, I read this book largely while the background noise was listening to my wife put our child to to sleep for the, the night. And uh, I, I think these were good Good ways to to read this book. I, I think so too. I, I I think also, you know, if you're bringing up a rom com, we should always end every episode by talking about rom coms. Maybe uh, <laughs> the most the most structurally tight type of story uh, that you can learn to 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 steal from. But um, you know, what Haldeman has written is 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 a romance without sexual jealousy. And and to me, that's a really we didn't really touch on that at all. But that's a really fascinating approach to write a convincing romance uh, that doesn't rely on sexual jealousy as a propeller for the romance. And I I loved that about this novel. Right. Well, the the obstacle in this rom-com is is not uh, other lovers or cases of mistaken identity. It's the uh, faceless government that wants to send you to other planets to get killed by people who don't actually want to kill you all that much. So Right. <laughs> and time dilation. Well, all right. I think at this point, if we're uh, we're trying to find ways to convince people that this novel is actually a secret rom-com, we, uh, <laughs> we have concluded what we have to say about this book. But uh, before we sign off, Brandon, let me say thanks for coming on the show to do this extra episode with me this week. Oh, it was my pleasure. And I'm so glad to have reread this novel. I hadn't really anticipated I would be rereading it again. And what a joy, what a pleasure it was. So thanks for having me on and, and getting me to read this book another time. Yeah, what an absolute blast. So I'll sign off now by saying I'm Glenn McDorman, and you can find me and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. This includes the two that Brandon and I host together. Those are Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, and also the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Uh, I want to say thanks again to the supporter who commissioned this episode. This really was a ton of fun. It's a super important book, and I'm really glad we had the opportunity to cover it together. It was just awesome. I will be back solo later this month with our regularly scheduled episode on the really remarkable fantasy novel, The Deep by John Crowley. And then next month, I'll be back with another sci-fi classic. That's going to be Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke. And until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Thank you.